KCALP, Petaluma, California. This is DJ Said, host of Full Circle Sessions. Every Friday afternoon from 3 to 5 p.m., my show presents incredible dance music from a Good morning, Petaluma. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Welcome to our program today. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. It's great to have our listeners here today and in our studio for our first segment is Ali Gaylord, Director of Housing Development for Midpen Housing. Welcome to the studio. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here today. We're going to solve all of the housing problems, at least in Petaluma, if not the entire region, uh, during our 27 minutes on the air today. Are you ready for that? I'm looking forward to the challenge. <laughs> great, so welcome here. And um, so my usual format as we talked is to... Uh, ask you a little bit about how you got into this housing business, so you're a little bit about your background and where you come from and all that. I like our listeners to know a little bit about the people who are affecting our community in some way. Sure. Um, so I grew up in Michigan and um, went to Michigan State University for college, and I majored in economics. And after I got out of my uh, economics degree, I didn't want to be a banker or anything like that, and I got into affordable housing, and I really decided I could use my kind of financial skills by um, for all the financial things that we do in affordable housing, and uh, really, really liked the ability to make a difference in people's lives. We housed working families, um, and so it was something that really fit well with my kind of goals. Um, I moved here to California in 2008 and worked for a couple of nonprofits. One nonprofit in the city called Todco. Um, I worked for Bridge Housing Corporation for about 10 years, um, and then I came to Midpen about two years ago. So I've been in affordable housing for about 17 years total. Wow. Uh, you've been in affordable. I, I hope the housing you're in is affordable. <laughs> I've been in the affordable housing industry. Oh, okay. <laughs> the housing right, that I'm in good. is not. That's good. So, um, so I, I guess one of the first questions that comes up: What is uh, affordable housing? What does that mean? What is affordable? Well, so there are several different definitions, but um, kind of the most widely used definition is housing that costs no more than 30% of a person's gross income or a family's gross income. So um, the type of housing that Midpen Housing does is um, deed-restricted affordable housing that um, we are we enter into regulatory agreements that we set rent levels um, at no more than 30% of, of median incomes for, for targeted levels of families. So, for instance, um, in Sonoma, um, the area median income for a family of four uh, at 100% area median income is about $108,000. Um, our programs, um, up until recently, have gone to 60% area median income. So we could serve folks that make up to 60% of the area median income, which for a family of four in, in um, Sonoma would be $64,800. So we could um, charge, we could house people uh, that make up to that income, and then our rents would be 30% of that. Oh, okay. So 
So every area has its own definition based on median income, mm-hmm. based on local economic factors That's that right. affect this. That's right. Because uh, if you just said 30% of income, well, $200,000 incomes, uh, 30% would certainly not be affordable to a lot of people uh, who live here. So there are, well, uh, and are these regulations Federal Housing Authority regulations, or are they California state, or how does that work? Right. So the area median income is a, a national um, kind of measurement that's done by the um, Federal Housing and Urban Development HUD. Um, so, uh, and then the program that is used for most um, deed-restricted affordable housing is called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, and that's a federal program that was um, initiated in 1986 by the Reagan administration. And so, um, the tax credit regulations are the are the ones that really um, peg mostly where where um, we can use those funds and who we can direct the housing to. But there are also other local sources. Folks probably remember the redevelopment agencies that had low and moderate income housing funds, and they could have kind of different rules because they had their own program. So they could actually serve folks up to 120% of the area median income. So if you calculate uh, 30% of the $64,000, so that's uh, $18,000 approximately, a, a little over $18,000 a year on housing. And is, is the definition of housing only what they're paying for rent? It's rent and utilities. So rent and utilities. So um, how does minimum wage fit in with that, and what's the connection? Is that so? That is where it. Um, we we have kind of gradations of um, folks that we target. So the continuum of, of folks is up to that sixty percent area median income, but we have lower targeting. So like twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent. So. Um, so maybe it helps to give kind of a number example. If there was a single person making 30% of area median income, that would be 22600 So they would have kind of a different rent than that $64,000 income family, income earning family. So that's almost 2000 a month. Um, with for that 64000 right, yes, right. yes. But, wow. it's, but it is, it's kind of... It's more related to per person, per family. It's not just a set rent. So we set our income targeting to different um, income levels and different rent levels. Okay. So, um, so you were you're doing something in Petaluma, right? Mm-hmm. What is what's happening here in Petaluma? So we um, are working on a 40-unit um, family housing development on Petaluma Boulevard. Uh, 414 Petaluma Boulevard North, and that's the site of the current Magic Wand Car Wash, and um, it's at the kind of corner of Oak Street and the Boulevard. And um, what we're doing right now is hoping to propose 40 units for families that would be affordable to that 30 to 60 percent area median income level. So we would have rents ranging um, for like a one bedroom from $600 about to a three bedroom. Uh, at about 1600 So we, what we like to do is do kind of a range of income targeting um, so we can really serve the broadest um, population as possible. And are there local obstacles to following through on this kind of project? Um, are there political obstacles, legal obstacles, uh, or you just go and say, we can do it, and okay, here it is. What, what's that like? Um, 
I, I think there's always obstacles, of course, of development. Um, but what we like to do at MidPen is do a lot of um, upfront community engagement and outreach before we even propose a project. So um, for this development uh, in particular, we've spoken with um, city staff, uh, both city manager and city housing staff, as well as council people, um, and had um, community outreach meetings. Um, to try and kind of gauge what folks like um, about the prod about this project, about the site, um, what they could see as a, a successful development. So um, at the end of the year last year, we actually had three community open houses and invited the neighbors, and we actually um, asked for their feedback on our proposal and gave some sketches and um, some ideas and concepts of what the building could look like. And um, we were able to take their feedback and really, through an iterative process, change our designs to meet with, you know, to meet some of their concerns and address their comments on the building design. So um, we just wrapped that uh, community engagement process up in the end of uh, January, and we're getting ready to submit our um, entitlement application to the city, which is how we would get our city approvals. And because of that community process, we got a lot of good feedback um, and, and a lot of acceptance from the neighbors that are there, um, and as well as the city staff and council people. They really appreciated that um, that we kind of took that proactive approach to reach out to the neighbors and um, really let them know what we were thinking before we made any um, decisions. So uh, I'm trying to... You know, I know that when for-profit developers come in, they have to theoretically allow, allocate part of their uh, part of their uh, construction for affordable housing of some sort, and those rules go back and forth, and uh, development fees that they can pay in lieu of doing that, and it's a, a complex uh, system. Um, how does how does mid-pen housing differ from uh, those kinds of things? And um, how do you get to be a nonprofit in this business? Um, well, I think to be a nonprofit, you just file your tax forms, right? That's <laughs> it's, it's a 1080, whatever the form is. I know, yes, that's right. Um, but you know, we're a 50-year-old company, and we have over 8,000 units and over 100 developments. Um, so we have a really long track record of um, providing this high-quality, affordable housing. Um, and we differ from a market rate housing development because we do do 100% affordable housing development, so we wouldn't be subject to any of those inclusionary requirements. In fact, um, sometimes we do partner with um, inclusion with developers and like a master development where they have an inclusionary requirement. So we potentially may build um, the affordable housing that that developer is required to do. I'm actually working on uh, the Napa Pipe project up in Napa right now where um, we're going to be building 140 um, affordable housing units for that development. I think it's entitled for like 900 units, and we'll be building 140 affordable units. Um, but so, so there are several ways that local governments can try and encourage um, market rate developers to either in do on-site inclusionary or partner with a, a nonprofit to do um, affordable or pay those fees to try and put into a separate standalone affordable housing project. So is, does the um, rental market differ in some ways in regard to affordable housing from the for-profit uh, house purchasing purchasing the property? Um, is the rental property program that you've established 
I know that uh, you were asked earlier a little bit about properties that were sold as affordable housing and then eventually turned over and at uh, market rate. Um, does, does that connect to what you do or is that a separate issue? It's a separate issue. Um, MidPen does affordable rental housing. So when we and when we build, we um, the financing that we get, uh, we ha- we record a regulatory agreement on our property so that it's actually on the deed that we're required to provide the rental housing at an affordable rate for at least 55 years. That would be different than um, maybe a market rate person that's doing um, a for sale. That Those programs would be separate and different programs and be under different requirements. Um, there, there are a lot of different kind of for sale home ownership um, programs out there. So I'm not, you know, that's that's not our core business. And how did your, uh, where does your funding come from? Where do you get the funds to do these projects? Each You're one not profit, so you shouldn't right. have any money there. We right? don't. <laughs> we don't. Um, each one of our projects is uh, financed independently of each other. Uh-huh. Um as I mentioned before, the low-income housing tax credit is a big source of funds for each of our projects, um, and that funds about 50% of the cost of a project. Um, we also have local funding from the state or local counties or cities that um, that makes up about 40%. And then because our rents are so low, we can get a little bit of regular mortgage like you would get on a house. But because our rents are kept so low, it's only about 10% of our total financing stack. Hmm. So it's it's uh, so low-income housing tax credit. What is that? So the low-income housing tax credit is um, it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar reduction in tax liability. So what... Um, this program, it's a tax program, it's run by the IRS, um, what it does is allocates each state a set amount of tax credits based on their population. So California gets a lot of tax credits, but California is also very big, so they're very much in demand. And what um, is done is a nonprofit will apply to the state tax credit allocation agency um, and receive an allocation of tax credits. And when we receive that allocation of tax credits, we then sell that to an investor. And the investor gets to take that dollar-for-dollar reduction in their tax liability in exchange for giving money, equity, to to us for our project. So we're able to pay down the costs of construction with that equity contribution. So that's what about 50% of each project is funded with that low-income housing tax credit equity. So... So you do have outside investors. You have uh, I won't venture capitalists or people who are no who are people who are investing. Yes, yeah, uh, so typically large banks or um, insurance companies. Uh-huh. Back in the old days, folks who have really large tax liabilities uh, will be investing in, in this. And is that investing done directly or through bonds or through how, how is that done? It's typically done. Um, a lot of the large banks will do it directly. Um, there's also um, what we call low-income housing tax credit syndicators who create funds that these large corporations put money into the fund, and then the syndicators go out and, and do the investing for them. So uh, it's, 
I guess I'm trying to uh, imagine, I'm looking, since I have grown up uh, myself in the nonprofit world, I'm trying to uh, figure out, and I, I realize that what you're creating is a very important piece of what we need in our world, which is low-income housing and affordable housing for people. So I'm not arguing that point. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to figure out the system of uh, having it be a, a nonprofit corporation and then how that works for for you to to make more housing out there, but also for our society to recognize that nonprofits are not just uh, social service agencies or or symphony orchestras that mm -hmm. you can contribute to and you take a tax deduction, but that there are other specific, more complex financial situations in which nonprofits function too. Absolutely. So that's what I was trying, that's why I'm fishing around in, in this area trying to figure out, wow, how does this work as, mm -hmm. uh, as a nonprofit organization? So once you, once you build these structures, um, you continue management? Is Mid-10 doing the management of all these buildings, or are you contracting out? How are you doing the management of the buildings? Yes, Mid-10 has, um, we're kind of organized into three groups. We have our real estate development, so that's the, the group that I'm on that really goes out and, and finances these projects, builds them. And then we have our property management, Mid-10 Property Management Company, um, who we work closely with to do all the renting and lease up and then they manage our properties ongoing. And um, we also have Mid-Pen Resident Services Corporation. So at all of our properties, we provide resident services, which we feel is part of uh, the core to our mission, that housing is not enough to provide people. You also have to provide them support. Um, so, for instance, in our family programs, we do um, kids after school programs. And we also have a, a six week long ac academically based after, or, sorry, summer program um, at all of our family developments. And at our senior developments, we do things like wellness activities. Um, and for our supportive housing, we have case management and referrals to outside services as well. And do you have uh, independent ombudsman services uh, that function that's, for the house. Yeah, that's what we would call kind of a resident services coordinator, uh -huh. um, where they may say, oh, this person is in need of, you know, these three services. We're, we're going to connect them with those resources. Right. And th that's a, uh, that's another complex uh, part of the, of the housing world is uh, when you, once you start providing more than just giving them the keys to an apartment and uh, and taking care of the plumbing, uh, but also to provide services and looking after the comfort, particularly either for families or for seniors, uh, then the world gets even more complicated. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Have you worked in those parts at all? Of, uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. I, I haven't. I work closely with um, our property management and our resident services uh -huh. because we all have to um, really um, work well and kind of conceptualize who we'll be serving when we're when I'm doing the kind of development work up front. Um, so there's a lot of things that we take into account as far as design and what kind of um, community room would work best for a property or what kind of um, space do we need for the after school program. Um, so we, we do work really closely with those folks, but I've never um, personally done resident services or property management. Yeah, that could be a challenge. There's um, there's some senior residences in our community where the residents are always complaining about this not doing right and this not doing right. And it's a really complex uh, relationship in terms of responsibility and, you know, how things are taken care of there. So uh, 
Uh, it's a different division than uh, you're certainly in. Your office is in Santa Rosa? Yes, my office is in Santa Rosa. Our main office is in Foster City on the peninsula, uh -huh. um, but we also have regional offices. So we've got six people working in my office in Santa Rosa. Um, we have an Oakland office and an office in Watsonville as well. Okay, and these, all these uh, developments that you've completed, are they in California or are they outside of the state? Yes, they're all in California. Uh, we uh, we really only work in the kind of north north um, northern California area. We call it the eleven county Bay area. Uh huh. Oh, I usually hear nine. County I know. We're, we kind of stretch it. Solano <laughs> and uh, Yuba. Oh, Yuba. Wow. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So. Um, no, sorry, I missed. I misspoke. Uh, Yolo is what I meant Yolo, to say. Yeah, sorry, yeah. they all sound the same. <laughs> Yolo, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Um, so, uh, do you measure the impact that these that this uh, program of developing affordable housing? Do you measure it in terms of the people? Do you take surveys of residents? Do you? Uh, look at quality of life that's developed in these, uh, and I realize that's a different, uh, resident services is, uh, is different, but uh, perhaps you might be connected enough to it to know if, if that is monitored very closely and how that's handled. We do collect um, data for on our resident services side. Um, you know, I, I think we're trying to um, kind of work on a way to kind of package that and be able to deliver that out um, in a kind of um, comprehensive but not too kind of data statistical way. Um, we've also had some success on uh, the peninsula at some of our properties and working with schools to try and um, get data uh, to kind of measure how well kids are doing after participating in our after school programs and our summer programs. Um, but it's not something that I have kind of at the ready at the moment. That's okay. Yeah. That's good. So is this development that you're uh, beginning in Petaluma here, uh, number one, is this a test case for Petaluma and looking for future opportunities here? Uh, how do you uh, decide where you're going to be placing? Is it by somebody coming to you from Petaluma's either city council or activists in the community and saying, we need affordable housing? How does that process get started? We certainly um, like to know that we are welcomed in the community when we're looking at siting a property, um, and and we have um, we usually kind of start talking with the city, um, either the housing folks or the city manager, and and really make sure that 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 what we're thinking um, kind of aligns with the goals. And what we heard here in Petaluma is there's a huge need for housing. Um, there is a senior uh, affordable housing property that's in development by PEP Housing. Um, and so the city officials were really keyed in on providing family housing uh, kind of as the next step um, for affordable housing here. So we heard that, so that's why we were targeting um, our property at 414 Petaluma Boulevard um, as family housing. It's also based on um, the site, the site characteristics. For this site on the Petaluma Boulevard, it's very close to transit, very close to downtown, so it's walkable and bikeable to grocery stores, to places of employment, um, to parks. So all the kind of site amenities um, are really what we look at as well because we want we want our residents to have a really good quality of life. Um, 
So kind of all of those things in addition to, you know, is there city funding? Um, I think a lot of um, a lot of our um, site characteristics were met with this site, and I think we would certainly develop more affordable housing in Petaluma. Um, Petaluma is growing, and I think um, the city council is very interested in being able to provide uh, a mix of housing at different income and rent types, rent levels. Right. And I, I know that um, our city council just approved a uh, developments in town uh, that are controversial because of environmental factors, uh, the smart train, the, this very complex uh, contract that was just uh, approved by city council the other night. And um, but affordable housing is certainly a very important piece of uh, what we're needing here in Petaluma. Uh, the minimum wage, of course, was uh, just raised on January 1st, uh, following a lot of activists trying to help our uh, workers here in town find ways to be able to afford to live here, to be able to serve this community. So uh, this kind of work is uh, is really important, and I know that. Uh, you came to our uh, Community Relations Council meeting, just to, and people were really excited by the fact that there was hope for some affordable housing here in Petaluma. Um, your job must keep you running around to different communities a lot. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and each one's a little different in its culture and in its uh, regulations and all of that kind of thing. Um, so what do you see as the, uh, given the nature of costs here, particularly in this part of the world, and the increasing housing costs, what do you see as the future? Any projections of what it's going to look like in, in terms of affordable housing for people? You know, I think we just have to kind of keep trying to um, increase our production of affordable housing um, to keep up with that need. Uh -huh. um, you know, I just looked up a statistic that uh, an average uh, two-bedroom in Petaluma is renting for uh -huh. 2300 um, You know, so that versus our kind of highest level of uh, two-bedroom rent um, is about like $800 more than what we would be charging. So, I mean, I think it's definitely something that we need to kind of keep working on, um, making sure that there are good sites, that people are supportive of affordable housing, and that the city is really um, making making kind of the effort to, to get more affordable housing built. Well, I know that uh, our city is desperately in need of this and appreciative of the efforts of Midtown Housing to come into our midst and make homes for people who work here and live here and uh, want to be here as part of this community. So, Ellie Gaylord, I want to thank you so much for being part of uh, this program today and bringing your project into our community. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Please join us soon for our second segment.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted uh, here on KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Welcome to our second segment. Um, we had a wonderful discussion with Ali Gaylord during the first segment uh, about affordable housing here in Petaluma. And uh, switching gears, I would like to uh, welcome to our studio Clint Gilbert, who is the president of the board of directors of the Petaluma Museum Association, the Petaluma Museum. Well, welcome. Welcome to our studio. I'm glad you're here. And um, wow, Petaluma Museum. So just to be uh, let the listeners know, I was on the board uh, for, uh, for a while. I was the treasurer, which was so much fun. Um, yeah, um, I didn't tell you, I have memories of uh, the Wells Fargo crisis of opening accounts for people. We had oh. that when I was there at the oh. museum, and it was, uh, I got this uh, debit card that I never requested, and uh, they couldn't explain it to me, how it, ca- it got to me. Uh-huh. It's really uh, interesting. But uh, we haven't had accounts at Wells Fargo. I know, I know. At Summit, yeah. yeah, yeah, probably at Summit, but we anyway. Are. Uh, welcome. So, how long have you been president? How uh, I think one board meeting. One board meeting. That's right. Oh my goodness! You had no revolution or anything like that. So uh, far, no, so good. So yeah. far, so good. <laughs> so, give me a little bit before we get into the museum and all that. Your background, Petaluma, sure. where you grew up, and how well, long you've been that's here. A long story. All that kind of stuff. Well, we'll keep it there. Go ahead. Uh, well, I. Um, I started my West Coast business life in the 80s in San Francisco. Uh, I uh, was a co-founder of something called Jazz in the City, which uh, later became the San Francisco Jazz Festival. Ah. So I was with that for 10 years. Uh, I started uh, a special event lighting company, uh-huh. uh, Impact Lighting in San Francisco, and ran that for 20, 25 years along with my business partner, and then sold that in 2002, 2000 maybe. And uh, started an Apple consulting business in the East Bay. Uh, sold that a few years ago. So um, that's sort of my little bit of nonprofit there with the Jazz Festival. Uh-huh. A little bit of for-profit uh, with lighting and uh, tech support. I uh, also was the president of the Bay Area Country Dance Society for a number of years. Okay. So I uh, was an avid contra dancer and square dancer. Loved that. Uh, ran some dance camps, things like that. How long have you been in Petaluma? Just uh, six, maybe six and a half years. Uh-huh. I, uh, as a lighting designer, I came to the museum, was recommended by uh, John Crowley. Uh-huh. John put me in touch with uh, the president of the museum at that time, Harry. Uh-huh. And Niebauer, uh, right. Sorry? Harry Niebauer. Yes. Yeah, Harry uh-huh. Niebauer. Uh-huh. And uh, so I designed a lighting system for the atrium under the stained glass dome, uh-huh. uh, a suspended system that allowed us to light exhibits or allowed them to light exhibits uh, without detracting from the beauty of the dome, So, which is the largest freestanding uh, dome in Northern California. Wow. So, uh, and I just love the people there. You know, I'm not, I don't have a strong history background. I think history is important, but it wasn't really my first I was more of a theater major, uh-huh. um, but I just really, really uh, love the people, and of course, the building is, uh, its as they say, its greatest artifact, uh, and just stayed around and ended up joining the uh, programming committee uh-huh. and becoming the chair of that. I was asked to go on the board, and uh, I think uh, Kathy 
Baron Fries was the last president, and then she stepped down, and I jumped stepped into up. the fray. Yeah, right. right. Stepped up. Yeah. Right. Great. yeah, It's so much fun to be the president of a board, don't you think? I do think that. Okay. I do think that. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're all looking at each other. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a challenge at times. So this, um, the museum, um, this building, of course, is owned by the city. Right. Right. Is, and yeah. uh, in many ways, and they have delegated to the PMA, the Petaluma Museum Association, the responsibility for, in essence, uh, providing the programming in the building and uh, being the museum for and, and charting the history of our community. Yes. I think that's a good explanation. Yeah. 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 Um, they, uh, they're still on the board. The right. Park and Rec is still on our board and very active in uh, in the say of the museum. Right, so. right. So, um, first of all, just for now, what's what's happening at the museum now? There's uh, the um, annual exhibit for... For Black History. For Black History, Black History. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is the 12th year, 11th uh-huh. or 12th year that the exhibit has been on the main floor. Uh-huh. I think before that, maybe in your time, in fact, it may have been upstairs. No, it, was, it was downstairs. Was yeah. it then? Okay, uh-huh. all right. Yeah, uh, and uh, that's actually an exhibit that uh, we do not, the Museum Association does not put on. The Petaluma Blacks for community development, uh, most notably with uh, Faith. Right, Faith Ross. Faith uh, Ross, right. She uh, sat in this chair once already, so she's she, been this she? route, yes. Yeah, she's a remarkable person, she and is. it's her force yeah. that puts on this exhibit. It's almost yeah. for two months. Right. Uh, it'll close in March. Uh, and uh, it's this year. It's look. They're thinking about, or their the theme is uh, remember, educate, and celebrate. Mm. So we're remembering uh, African Americans who died this year, notable ones: uh, Elijah Cummings, mm. uh, Diane Carroll, and uh, uh, it's an education about the continuing fight for. Uh, uh, Black voters, and the uh, you know it's the 100th year, 100th celebration of the women's suffrage. It's the 150th anniversary of the black men's right to vote. Mm. So, uh, and that struggle continues right to today. It it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's a lot of celebrating to do too, in terms of uh, um, what's going on and. I don't even have my notes handy, but there's a lot of celebration there too. There's a wonderful uh, segment there on the uh, the um, creation of uh, the first black uh, cartoon character in the Peanut Strip. Mm-hmm. So very close to home, uh-huh. Uh-huh, with Charles Schultz right up there in Santa right. Rosa, right. and uh, how he introduced Franklin, the first black character, and sort of what the response was across the country. Uh, I think in some cases he told editors that they could either take his strip out or take it the way it was. Mm-hmm. So he I can was imagine, very, yeah. I can imagine right. that it was, yeah. You know, sometimes when we look back at history, we can say, look how far we've come. And then if you look at the other side of the same coin, you have to say, look how far we have yet to go. Right. And right. Uh, for almost any of those human rights kinds of issues, and certainly for the black community. And the black community, uh, I think uh, the organization that sponsored this uh, is, has been here for 40, I think there's 42 years. 42 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is, so uh, they've been here a long time and uh, integral to our community. And 
Faith Ross has been an amazing leader for for that community and for the general, for all of us here in Petaluma. She's an amazing, inspiring example of uh, community commitment and uh, and all that it takes to keep us together. Yeah, she and Gloria have really moved that organization along well. Yeah. Do you know what's coming next after the uh, this exhibit? Uh, We have uh, the Powder Puff Derby. Uh, celebration of women in flight in uh-huh. Petaluma. Uh-huh. Some of the okay. women pilots. Uh, women pilots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, but I just wanted to touch back on the minorities and uh, uh-huh. because I think if w- there's one thing the museum could do better, and that is is uh, portraying the history of minorities. You know, uh, before I even moved to Petaluma. I heard about the Jewish chicken farmers. Uh-huh. I don't think we've done anything on the Jewish chicken yeah, farmers. Yeah, we did. We did. First of all, there was a piece, uh, there was a little segment uh, upstairs. Yeah, upstairs. Uh, that was part of it. But yeah. um, I think we did something, I, I lost track of years here, uh-huh. too. I've been in town 15 years or so. So um, there was uh, an exhibit on the 150th anniversary of the Day Israel, which is uh, the, the synagogue of which I'm uh, the rabbi. Uh-huh. And uh, in the archives upstairs are some of the historical uh, records of, of B'nai Israel. So, oh, really? Yeah. Oh. I actually happen to have in my office a handwritten minute book from 1864 of the board of B'nai Israel. Uh, so I haven't turned that yeah. over to the library. We're kind yeah. of holding on to it, but uh, there should probably that. should be a community repository for yeah. these kinds of things. That's actually, I'm glad you said that because uh, we do have a fantastic uh, reference library yeah. that's open to the public. Right. So, in fact, that's one of the conditions of us being uh, where we are right. in that building. Right, right. Yeah, so, you know, you, you, you went quickly through the notion that your career was not based on history. Uh-huh. Uh, not proving it every minute I'm on the air, right? But you're, uh, uh, no, no, you're, but I was going to ask, well, what do you, why do you think it's important, just from your point of view, uh, not officially from the museum, which uh-huh. is, that's their job, is to document history and to expose it to the community uh, and have it available to the community. But why do you think this history stuff is important? Why, why, you know, you are oh, putting God. your time into it and asking you to think about that. And what, what, what do you well, think? Who said the past is prologue? The past is prologue. You know, yeah. I mean, it's really we're destined to yeah. repeat right. Uh, right. what we haven't learned. Right, right. So I, that for no other reason, and especially in this election year, being able to look back uh, at the mistakes and the, and the uh, accomplishments uh-huh. are helpful and Charting an election year, yeah. For me, deciding who to vote for, yeah. Of course, we could spend all we could do our program on who to vote for, we're but we were not going to go there. We're not going to go there. That's uh, yeah. I was just uh, I was thinking of the twenty names uh, on the Democratic ballot. How long it was! It was just so you know, confusing to people. It must be to see twenty names on there. Anyway, uh, but history is an important part of uh, any cultures. Uh, uh, ability to move forward because I think built into uh, into the human being is a sense uh, a needing to know where we come from and uh, how we got here and uh, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be able to, to quote Abraham Lincoln 25 times a day or anything like that but a consciousness that who we are today is built upon who we were 
before. Right, right. I agree with that. I think yeah. that's, that's well said. And uh, I think maybe there can be two different histories or maybe multiple histories. Uh -huh. um, there's maybe a popular history. Uh, right now, the museum is working on a couple of pieces about General Vallejo. Mm. Uh, there's the popular history, and then there's uh, maybe more how he actually treated the Indians uh, that were in his in his care. Right. Uh, there's a, we have a story coming up about that in one of our Wednesday dialogues. Mm -hmm. uh, we have another Wednesday dialogue. Do you know William Gorenfeld? He's going to be at the library doing a, uh, his piece called How the West Was Really Won. It doesn't touch on Vallejo, but everything else. And just the real history, the real facts of what happened. Yeah, when you say he's going to be at the li you mean the Petaluma Library right, or the right. museum? Okay, because the no, sorry, he was at the Petaluma Library last year. He's going uh, to be at the museum. Aha, uh -huh, okay, yeah, right. Yeah. And just to, for listeners, some people right. in Petaluma will refer to the building of the Petaluma Museum as the library because it was the Carnegie Building, it was the Carnegie Library uh, before it was taken out of there and became the museum. Right, right. So right. just uh, so people will often refer to it as the library. <laughs> and it gets confusing since there's another library in East Washington. Right. Yeah. I love every day if somebody will walk, almost every day, somebody walks in to the museum and says, I got my books here when I was a child. Right. And they're, right. Just, they're just happy to be back. Right, right. It's a good, it's a, you know, there is something about, uh, not number one, what the volunteers and everybody has done to portray the community. But there's also something about being in that building. There's uh, there's a feeling of history uh, in that building there itself. Is, it's a beautiful is. building, and uh, we're yes. lucky, really lucky to have it here in uh, in Petaluma. So this Wednesday series, could you tell me any, anything more you want to comment? You said I'm a, a part of the Wednesday dialogues. Series. Wednesday dialogues. Um, uh, it's uh it's not every Wednesday, but it's uh, maybe two Wednesdays a month, uh -huh. seven o'clock, and uh, uh, we just have a series of topical. Pieces that right, right. Um, we have the Petalumans of yesteryear coming up with uh, one of their talks, and which will be animated and sort of acted. Ah, okay, okay. And uh, you have a famous piano there. We do. Elizabeth Walter has loaned us her uh, concert uh, grand uh -huh. piano, and it's used it's used on Mondays, almost every Monday for our uh, musical Mondays, uh -huh. and as well as. Uh, for concerts throughout the year. Uh, Euro Margulis usually makes an appearance once a year. He's a famous Russian uh, pianist, concert pianist. And uh, the acoustics in that room, I mean, maybe it was built for reading, but it's really wonderful Great. to it listen to wonderful. music in there. It is wonderful. Yeah. We actually have had some programs from B'nai Israel, musical programs over there mm -hmm. because the acoustics are, uh, are really fantastic there. Euro Margulis. The historian, uh, you know, many of the Russian Jews went to Israel uh, as the wall came down in, his, uh, in the late 80s and 90s. And the, the story was that uh, when they came off the plane in Tel Aviv, uh, if they weren't carrying an instrument, they were pianists. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when you mentioned him, uh, that <laughs> reminded me of that story. Uh, they're so musical and uh, so talented in many ways, uh, that, the culture that they come from. Um, anything else happening there that we... Um, uh, oh, gosh. Yeah. Where should I start? Where should you start? Um, anything you need from the community? What would you like the community to know? Well, again, going back to this minorities, we would love to do uh, a more in-depth uh, 
exhibit uh, and uh, maybe even events around the Mexican community. Uh-huh. We don't really have a lot of Mexican uh, or Spanish uh, members on our board or on our staff, so we're looking for input. Okay, that. that would be an important. And Dia de los Muertos, is there for the Day of the Dead, is there any... Thing that's done well, at the I museum. Think, you know, I think uh, I think they stopped using the museum a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. And you know, I mean, the Mexican culture is so much greater than that one particular right. Uh, festival. Right. That's just the one that comes up here. Of course. Down, uh, of course. Uh, right. Of course. Right. It would be wonderful to have an exhibit there. Yeah. You know, probably thirty percent of our community is uh, of. Uh, You've looked at the numbers. You know, yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's it's really an important component. It's not. Not just a tiny component, uh, it's a major component yeah. of our community. Right. So, uh, so that's kind of an invitation if there's anybody in the Spanish-speaking community who happens to be listening or connected that can help the museum do some work uh, that would help uh, display that cult- those cultural That would be really great. Yeah. That would be wonderful. Like to talk to them. Yeah. That would be yeah. wonderful. And in terms of coming up, you know, we have our uh, annual gala. Uh, March 28th, it's called A Night at the Museum. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we're trying to reimagine what, you know, a fundraising gala can be. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a vintage selfie booth in our Victorian parlor with a photographer there to actually stage you and take the picture. Uh-huh. Um, in costumes? In costumes. We'll have costumes there that you can put on hats and capes and uh-huh. whatnot. Um, we have a really successful event called the History Hunt, which uh, is uh, kind of like a scavenger hunt through the museum, uh, and you learn history while you're doing it. Uh-huh. So that's, uh, we last year was the first year of that, and it was very successful, so it's coming back. Um, I said March 28th for that. Tickets, I think, uh, price, ticket price may go up March 6th on that, so okay. get them on. And there'll be food, of course, and music, and uh, drinks, so... It's a nice evening. Yeah, I know the museum's also a little, I don't know about famous, but every year the New Year's Eve party seems to be a uh, uh, an annual event that gets a, a full house over there. As, as it did last year, yeah. 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 Again, yeah. Elizabeth Walter is very uh, is a very an instrumental part yeah. of that. So what's, what's all, what was and, and still is, of course, fascinating for me about the museum is it's just not a place where you come through and look at things, but that there are, there's music and lectures and other kinds of events that help bring our community together in there to celebrate being part of Petaluma, which which the building represents. Right. And for those who haven't been to the museum, uh, the upstairs is our permanent collection, Uh uh, and then downstairs on the main floor, we have our exhibits that rotate during the year. But... If you're just moving to Petaluma, it's a great way to find out a little bit about our history. Just walk through, make the make the circle of the mezzanine, uh, and you'll go through the chicken farming and the river days and uh, the history, the um, history homes, and and just what early Petaluma life was like. Mm. I've always, uh, you know, when when I was on the board, I felt. uh, that we all had this amazing responsibility as board members for the care of this this institution that's there. And even though it was owned by the city, it, it was it felt like ours. It, was, it belonged Absolutely. to the city and to the to the citizens here. 
and uh, we have school groups coming in, and I hope that the school groups are coming in occasionally. It's probably we had somebody on the board who was uh, a teacher at the schools and would help facilitate so, uh-huh, bringing uh-huh. Uh, bringing school groups in, which yeah. uh, might I don't know if it's still going on, but yeah. if Freda uh, was our uh, was our big liaison okay. uh, for the uh, school groups. Right. Freda Rabbits, uh, uh-huh. she's uh, pulling back a little bit now, uh-huh. so we're looking actually uh, for some fresh fr- fresh talent there to bring the school groups back. Yeah, that's, so. uh, it's a it's, this is really an important institution for our community. Do you so? Many, many um, activities that happen in our city, uh, I observe that they're generational in many ways. Uh, I think if we, I'm not sure, I haven't looked at the list of uh, membership at the museum, but it it kind of represents a baby boom generation group and older. And... um, it really uh, would be lovely to know that uh, our younger families uh, moving into Petaluma, many new families come here regularly, uh, have a place to go where they can feel roots in the community. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. One, of the, uh, one of the things that I gained out of my connection with the museum was uh, not only being connected to my Jewish community and my synagogue, but feeling connected to the Petaluma community mm-hmm. and that this was my home. And so uh, part of my little monologue here is if there are any millennials uh, uh, and younger uh, listening to this program, to invite them to bring their families there and to see that you are in living in this community, you are part of something very special yeah. by living yeah. here. Yeah, I think all, almost all of our exhibits, uh, the Black History one uh, included, uh, we'll always have a children's section, uh-huh. um, and uh, actually our gala is just really a family-oriented event. There's lots of activities, the history hunt, for both the children and the adults to participate. And you have recently have a paved street out next <laughs> to the museum there, and people don't have to lose their uh, alignments on their cars to park near the museum and walk in the door. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After all the construction that was yeah. done there. So they put, I think they put in a new sewer. Yeah. That was the main uh, the that main was the thing. Main yeah, they're working thing. hard. They're working hard. Yeah, and yeah. It's trying yeah. to catch up with itself uh, in many ways. What... Um, what else? What else do you need at the museum? From do you are you still collecting artifacts from people? Um, we do. So, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Solange Rusick is our uh, artifacts uh, collections manager, uh-huh. and she is she works very hard. She gets. I think she has a twenty hour a week job, and she probably works forty. Uh-huh. Uh, she is uh, very dedicated and uh, has such a gift in. Not only the, with the artifacts, but with the people who are bringing them in. And she has, she runs a uh, uh, a group, a monthly group on uh, uh, for old timers. And so, what kinds of things uh, would the museum be interested in that people in the community might have that would make a difference? You should you should have Solange on the show. Okay, <laughs> all right. Because otherwise, it can just be a place to clean out the garage, and we don't want that yeah, happening, that's not right? Happening. That's, yeah. No, we don't yeah. want that happening. Yeah. But something that's connected to the history of, of the city, history of institutions in the city, uh, materials for the research library, um, 
all those kinds of things are really, uh, I believe, would be welcome uh, to collect yeah, there. Yeah. Have you been down in the basement? Many times. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. quite a collection down there. <laughs> it's quite a collection down there. Um, wow. So, um, the website, what's the website for the um, museum? PMA, Petaluma Museum Association. I think if you just Google yeah. that, you're yeah, going to get, get right there. So if you Google Petaluma Museum Association, yeah, and yeah. you can find out what the exhibit is and uh, what's going on there. Um, anything from your point of view? Sure. That, uh, well, you, you, you mentioned that the, sort of our demographic was the boomers, and we are actively trying to bring in new members, uh -huh. uh, younger, younger members, uh -huh. and we have memberships that uh, can work for that. Uh, for families, right. so that's uh, helpful. We're having a uh, a museum, uh, maybe, this is just actually coming out in Sonoma County, it's the Museum Members Weekend Swap coming uh -huh. up at the May, uh, I guess it's May 2nd and 3rd, uh -huh. where if you're a member of our museum, you may go to any museum take, and take three of your best friends with you uh -huh. for that weekend and go in for free. So, and conversely, if you're a member of the Sonoma County Historical Museum, you can come to our museum for free. Okay, that's that wonderful. That would be a great opportunity for people to learn the history, some of the histories of Petaluma and the other communities in Sonoma County. There's a very rich history there. There's a very rich history. Well, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time uh, to be with us today. I yep. think the uh, museum is a... Uh, an important piece of our uh, of our community, and uh, just uh, selfishly, I know that the Jewish community has records there that are really important to us, and to know that our history has been documented in some way in the research section, and that we've had the opportunity to display that history. And maybe it's time again to do something at some maybe point. So. Yeah. So before we finish up, any we any last messages for everybody? Oh. Uh, I just want to plug our, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is the 100th anniversary of uh, the women's right to vote, suffrage, uh -huh. and the museum has got a month-long, months-long uh, exhibit and series of activities from plays to dramatic readings uh, to stage debates, along with a fantastic exhibit. So that's going to be a couple of months starting in June. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Clint Gilbert, for president of the Petaluma Museum Association, for being with us on the radio right. today. Thanks, Rabbi Ted. Look for forward me. to the, seeing you in the community. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP, Petaluma, California. See you next time. <laughs> Thank you.